0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 to chapter 4 verse 6. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes are on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too. That God may open the door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: There are times when you read the Bible and it's not obvious, perhaps, that you need the help of God in order to understand or receive uh, what God has to say. Uh, Today is not one of those days. Uh, We do need his help and we do need to pray as we begin. Um, As we finish up our study in Colossians, Paul's letter to the church, the Christians, in Colossae, an ancient city in what is now Turkey, and a joy for us over the last several weeks to have been moving through this passage, this book, and grateful now to be finishing it as we've just consecutively moved through the book, and now we're finishing it up. So join me in prayer as we uh, look at this word. Let's pray together. God, I pray... um, With Thanksgiving, because you love us so much, you don't always address topics that we would by ourselves come up with. You don't always speak to us in ways that we easily understand. Uh, But that also means what we need to understand your word, your love, your truth is we need your Holy Spirit. We need you to help us. So come. Uh, Whatever our station in life, whatever our story, whatever maybe is on our hearts or our minds, we pray that you would come now and use even these words to somehow shed light, the light of grace, the light of Christ into our hearts and into our lives. We need you now. We pray that you would be present. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned this morning, we're finishing up our study of Colossians. And if you've been with us, you know by this point in the letter, the Apostle Paul has established that the resurrection of Jesus, his defeat of death and coming back to life changed everything. Not only individual lives of those who would embrace him, but even the whole world the whole cosmos all of reality changes when we consider the possibility that god has come and defeated death can you imagine such a world and in the midst of that world that god has made people new he has poured into this world that is littered with death as you and i know poured into this world new life. And in fact, as he renews people in Christ, giving us hope in the face of death, giving us light in the face of darkness, this is his invitation, yes, to you today, that he also tells us that people that are being remade by his grace constitute nothing less than a new humanity. A, a new human race, like we're 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 learning how to be people all over again. Human beings made in God's image. In other words, God in Christ has sent out a shockwave of newness in relationships in every single sphere of life. He's renewing our relationships, how we relate. To one another. And so, in the first part of chapter 3, which we looked at last week, we saw this newness in relationships poured out into the church. Uh, New ways that brothers and sisters in Christ relate to each other as they put on new virtues of humility and patience and gentleness and compassion and love. We looked at that last week. And then, secondly, starting in verse 10, we see newness in relationships in the home, where the apostle addresses three basic relationships that were found in ancient Roman households. And then thirdly, we find newness in relationships poured out starting in verse 2 of chapter 4 not just in the home, but now outside the home among one's neighbors. As one commentator, Doug Moo, has put it The creation of a new humanity in Christ does not mean an erasure of existing social relationships, but their transformation as they're lived out under the lordship of Christ. In other words, how does knowing Jesus, coming to know him or knowing him and his love, change the way you relate to other people? So today, we're looking at this passage specifically the latter two spheres, how Christ's resurrection life produces newness in the home and outside the home. And let's first briefly address the latter sphere first, outside the home. Paul urges the Colossian Christians to remember their neighbors, those who are outside to or new to the Christian faith. So if you are someone that identifies with Jesus, you're identified as a Christian, here's a question to start with. Do you think of your relationship with neighbors as a crucial part of your Christian discipleship? That your way of relating to those outside the church is a vital part of your growing in faith and love. It's not an extracurricular activity, uh, an optional class. In the curriculum of Christ, as it were, it's part of the core. It's a central thing, and it's addressed here. Mainly, we find this in the way that the Apostle asks for prayer. In verse 3 of chapter 4, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So what specifically does the apostle remind us to pray for in regard to our relationship with those who are new to or outside the Christian faith, which I know includes some of you that may be here today, but this is how we're directed here. Seven things. Number one, opportunities. Pray for opportunities. The apostle uses the language of open doors, opportunities to build authentic relationships, not as a means to an end, but to truly know someone and the needs and desires of their hearts and of their lives. Open doors, which also includes, of course, open homes, hospitality, open tables, sharing meals together, open lives, actually bearing vulnerability with those who you are befriending. And the goal, of course, that Paul has in mind here is the goal of telling people about the amazing grace and love of Jesus. He also points out a prayer for clarity, uh, that as one chooses to speak about the gospel of grace, in verse 4 he says, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. He's praying for clarity. Number three, he prays for courage. Uh, verse 3, uh, Christ for which I am in chains. He is unabashed in noting that he is actually bearing the cost of speaking out loud about Jesus as he did in the first century and was imprisoned for his Christian faith. Here's an invitation to be unafraid. Someone says, Paul, you don't understand. It's hard in this day, in this town, to speak the name of Jesus out loud or to talk about the things that I believe. And Paul says, you don't know. I do understand. I do understand how hard it can be. I bear on my body the marks of suffering for Jesus. Be unafraid, but don't be brash or rash. In verse 5, he prays fourthly for wisdom. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. So that you're actually thinking and considering how you are carrying yourself in the way that you can actually be a vessel of love and hope and truth and communication of the gospel of grace to people, not only in your words, but also in your actions. Jesus said this too, right? Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. If you're a visitor here today, I hope you see in the lives of those who are followers of Christ around you, whether friends or people across the street or in your workplace, I hope what you see is something like light. And that their light shines with the light of Jesus in a world of so much darkness. Fifthly, zeal. Make the most of every opportunity. Sixthly, winsome words. Verse six, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Just like Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect where Christians are called not to be debating constantly those who disagree with their beliefs or looking down upon them or treating their doubts as illogical or irrational, but rather with respect and hope and gentleness and care and love. Make those engagements and conversations seasoned with salt and full of grace so that, Paul says, seventhly, you may know how to answer Everyone ready to give explanation. Pray that I might be able to communicate these things in a way that a person might see Jesus and hear Jesus for who he is. So, here's the question to apply. Who can you pray for that God would perhaps open a door for relationships with your neighbors? And again, I I, I mean authentic friendships. That, that perhaps can result in open doors and shared lives and hospitality and the hospitality of Christ? Who can you be praying for, for an open door that the fullness of Christ can be shared with those around you? Jesus' newness pours into our relationships outside the home, but it also happens inside the home. Resurrection newness in the home. And here we come across these verses in the first part of our passages, passage here. Uh, in verse 10 of chapter 3 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4, what we find here is a list of primary relationships in Greco-Roman households. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, domestic slaves in the household. And right from the start, it's important, it's crucial for us to acknowledge that this very passage of the Bible, along with similar passages in the New Testament, has been distorted by Christians and used to justify terrible abuses all across the centuries. For example, verse 18, wives submit to your husbands, and passages like it have been used to treat wives and women in general as inherently subordinate, and it has been used to entrap countless women in situations of domestic abuse and sexual abuse. Verse 20 has been used to justify harsh or even abusive treatment of children. And in regard to slaves in verse 22, it's of crucial importance to note that Greco Roman slavery was quite different from what normally comes to our minds when we read that word. Back then, its practice was often humane, yes, but it wasn't race based or it wasn't made possible by kidnapping. It typically wasn't lifelong, you could actually purchase your freedom. And it was similar to indentured servanthood, in other words, a way to pay down your financial debts. And yet, despite these important, even crucial contextual differences between the old world and the new world, the ancient and the more modern, These verses from Colossians were commonly used, especially during the 17th through 19th centuries, to propagate and justify chattel slavery in America. And friends, the wounds aren't just historical, they're also personal. Some of you here today uh, can't help but to, to flinch or maybe even flee, maybe in your minds, in your hearts right now, when you hear this part of the Bible read aloud. Friends, we need to acknowledge and confess all of this as an important first step. Christians have manipulated this passage that we're looking at in Scripture to perpetrate and shelter terrible evils, and so we do need to approach it with fear and trembling, great caution and care, and also with the hope that there is the possibility of wisdom and truth that can, in fact, come through. So with another prayer lifted up to God, Lord, help us now. Here we go. How can we understand this passage? What can we learn? What can we observe? And what I want to point out here is if we carefully read this passage in light of the entirety of the book of Colossians, and in light of the entirety of the New Testament, even the Bible, what emerges are two important intertwined themes, two themes that we must notice. One is role differentiation, and two is radical inclusion. Role differentiation and radical inclusion. See, this passage does say things like wives, submit to your husbands, husband, love your wives, children, obey your parents, and so forth. And it's important for us not to resolve our personal discomfort with these kinds of words by too quickly erasing these verses or evacuating them of any real meaning or relevance to our lives. There is much to understand and study and to understand about them, but let's be careful of not just erasing it because of our own cognitive dissonance. These verses point to the fact that there is order to life in the kingdom of Christ, that there are real differences in gender or position and station in life that should be honored even as we honor Christ. Role differentiation. But we also find a second theme, radical inclusion. And it almost appears to contradict the first one. We've encountered this very vision for radical inclusion all throughout the letter to the Colossians already. Uh, For example, first, we, we heard about how Christ has supremacy over all things, which means necessarily that no person, no group, no class of human beings has supremacy over one another. Second, we were told by Paul, warned against being captive by human traditions, cultural rules and commands that you're not obligated to obey things that God has not actually commanded you, Paul told us in chapters 2 and 3, which would also seem to include cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity or gender roles, things that are not actually spelled out or mandated in scripture. It's worth taking a look. Thirdly, we're given a cosmic vision of Christ's work. Again, God is making nothing less than an entirely whole new humanity. He's inaugurating a whole new creation with a whole new social order. He's just exploding all of it. And so forthly. what we find then is God making his new people united in love taking people that are divided in the world uniting them together in love with the whole body we're told we're we're brought together into a body supported and held together in a new radical kind of oneness inclusion in christ to the point where paul in chapter 3 verse 11 says here there is no gentile or jew barbarian scythian or free because christ is all in other words friends do you hear what i'm saying we find here themes of radical equality and inclusion, shared oneness. We find a kingdom that, in fact, pushes against the maintenance of hierarchies. This we need to see as a true theme and emphasis in Scripture, in the book of Colossians, even as we hold it in tension with other themes. Whatever else, we conclude that this text says we must not overlook or be deaf to this important theme of radical inclusion and oneness in the gospel. In other words, the way that God's people share and exchange love and power across our relationships should be surprising to the world. It should turn ahead. In fact, it may be hard to tell, but this radical, uh, barrier-busting, countercultural thrust is exactly what we find in today's text when we compare it with other ancient household codes that were common in the Colossians' day. So, for example, if you were actually to scour, as many historians have scoured, these other secular and religious texts that were contemporary to Paul's day, similar kinds of lists of instructions given to different people in their respective social roles, what we find there in those texts is that usually only the socially dominant individual is named and addressed. In other words, the husband, the father, the master. But here, notice how the apostles' instructions run in lists of pairs. Not just the husbands, but also the wives. Not just the parent, but also the child. Not just the master, but also the slave. See, what's happening here is Paul is intentionally dignifying, making visible those that Colossian culture originally would have deemed inferior and not worth addressing. Those who were typically subject to abuse and harsh treatment by those with greater power in Greco-Roman society. Paul says, no, I see you. Here, I'm speaking to you. No, I love you. Notice also how in each pair, our passage names the socially weaker member first. This, too, is likely intentional. Again, the Scripture's affirming their personhood, their agency, and he even spends the most time giving instructions to slaves who would have had the least social power of them all. Do you see the radical thrust of this passage? A third observation, in every case, the apostle reconfigures each of these roles around Christ the Lord. He's not just baptizing and adopting the way things are in Roman society. He's saying, look, when you introduce Jesus, everything turns upside down, doesn't it? Because Christ was the one who was supreme and yet came as a servant. Christ was the one who was head of the church and over all things head, and yet for our salvation became numbered among the dead. Christ, who himself is our master, God himself he is, yet he came as a servant and slave, giving his life, not taking life, giving life and power to those for whom he came to save. Fourthly, Aristotle uses the word rule, rule over, to describe the husband's job. And the word obedience, absolute obedience, to describe what a wife owed to her husband. And of course, Paul uses no such language here. Aristotle believed that women were inherently inferior, which contradicts scripture. That there was therefore a, quote, permanent inequality in relations between men. And that, quote, the male is by nature fitter to be a leader than the female. First century Jewish philosopher Philo put it this way, wives must be in servitude to their husbands, a servitude promoting obedience in all things. Or the Jewish historian Josephus said this, the woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive. And before we're too quick to say, well, those were ancient people that didn't seem to get it, listen, those beliefs are reflected in centuries past and in the Western world. It's reflected in the Victorian ideal that presented submission as an essentially feminine trait. Literally, they believed God made women to submit. And even in more recent times, in fact, just last week, Uh, 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 A recorded uh, conversation by Stephen Wolfe, a self-described Christian nationalist, who proceeded to explain that he believed that women shouldn't lead the nation, let alone the church or the home, because their natural leadership style is too empathetic, too inclusive in order to be effective. The point that I'm making here is that these beliefs course down throughout history and even in the Christian church, unfortunately, to our shame, even to today. But this is Aristotelian, not essentially Christian. All this, the Apostle Paul rejects. In fact, the requirement that husbands love their wives is found nowhere in Roman or Jewish literature. You can't find that kind of language. Instead, here we find those words using the Greek word agape, a distinctly Christian word for the kind of sacrificial, self-giving love whose model is Christ. This command would have been extraordinary if we have ancient ears to hear it, extraordinary for Paul's original audience. For husbands to be told, you need to lay down your lives for those in your household with a self-sacrificial, yielding love. See, we tend to assume that love is a central dynamic in marriage, but that's only because our Western conceptions of love have already been so shaped over the centuries by Christian norms. That wasn't originally the case before the times of Christ as scripture informed things like our marital relations. When this was first introduced, this passage, this letter, this Bible, this was radical. Love your wives. Give yourselves to one another. No one had ever heard anything like it. Love your wives as though she were the superior in the relationship. As one commentator puts it, love your wives, therefore, we need to understand, introduces a somewhat revolutionary note of reciprocity. Do you hear the revolution, is what I'm saying. Two strands that we find in scripture that we need to hold together, role differentiation and radical inclusion, And that they need to be sort of wrapped around each other and created like a strong rope held together or as a double helix, if that's your thing. Right? Both of these informing the ways in which we conduct relationships in the home and especially in marriage. Two vital strands. But I do want to say we got to notice that the main one, the main emphasis, the main priority that we find again and again in Scripture is that of oneness. A radical oneness that doesn't erase distinctions and yet at the same time is revolutionarily subversive of old hierarchies of old ways of distributing power in a way that harms and subjugates people. The Bible says no. Jesus shows us a different way. Will you heed this double strand? But what do these directions mean more practically? We need to move to that, and how do we apply them today? We're not going to have time actually to get into the slaves and masters thing, which is most commonly applied to workplace relations. There's, There's no modern equivalent, it's important to say, with what that was like to what we have nowadays, but I think Christians over time have most commonly applied those principles to workplaces or other settings where there's accountable relationships, vertical relationships. Consider it. We won't have time today to go over it. Instead, I'd like to focus our attention on the marriage relationship and the parenting relationship, and let's try to get more concrete. How do we apply this passage in light of the radical inclusiveness that we've encountered? So husbands and wives, when verse 18 tells us, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, what it's referring to is a voluntary yielding of an equal, not coercive, but a voluntary yielding of an equal within the context of mutual respect and mutual exchange. In other words, as, as, as intimidating or off-putting as that word submit can be towards us, what it means simply is to make room for to encourage and to follow the self-sacrificing leadership of one's husband. And so you ask, well, how are husbands then to lead? Is it just by making unilateral decisions and sort of leading in a domineering kind of spirit? Well, no, absolutely not. In verse 19, it's made clear that husbands are to lead through love. Husbands, love, love your wives, remembering that love too is rightly understood in the New Testament as a kind of submission. Love is a denial of self. Love is a dying for the purposes of the living of another person. Love protects, honors, cherishes, nourishes. Love looks to the needs and interests of others before your own. Putting them first. Husbands, this is the calling. This is what it looks like and sounds like to lead. Loving unto death. And someone says, well, nah, that, does, that doesn't sound like leadership. And that's just the point. It should rub up, rub up against, if not completely challenge, our common notions of what leadership in the world and even in the home might look like someone says what kind of leadership is this you know what it is it's the leadership of jesus it's the leadership of jesus as author and psychologist Diane Langberg in a recent book ponders aloud what does christ look like as head of the church like what does his leadership look like he becomes little Bending down, touching sickness, protecting the vulnerable, washing feet, dying, bearing pain for another. Likeness to Christ means inviting, not demanding, loving, not controlling. Headship that follows Jesus is headship that no human ever conceived it to be. The head of the home is to be the greater servant. Let me be clear. A spouse that is always demanding and getting their way is not leading, is not being a leader as Christ defines it, and is not worthy of being followed. Actually, dominance, rightly understood, is a form of passivity and cowardliness, because it takes hard work, strength, courage, and vulnerability to work things out with somebody else that might be smarter than you and might disagree with you. And just to yell or to strong-arm a person sometimes is the most cowardly, passive way of employing power. The call is to servanthood, which entails an exercise of initiative and responsibility but not mere authority too much of our discussion around these matters get wrapped around the language of authority it is initiative and responsibility to take to be a servant leader means to take the initiative let's get practical here to set the tone and the environment of the home in grace and compassion and humility and patience and love, which begins with the husband prioritizing his own spiritual growth and health and making the home a place where Christ and his word are central. To take the initiative as a servant means to be the chief repenter. You want to lead? Be the first one to repent. You want to lead? Be the first one to forgive and humbly admit your wrongs on a regular basis. It means to take the initiative not to always be setting the agenda unilaterally, but perhaps to suggest that an agenda needs to be set, and then to work through it collaboratively. To take the initiative to receive your wife's initiative and leadership without feeling threatened by it to promote a dynamic of collaboration, power-sharing, and mutual trust. After all, what is servanthood? But empowering your wife to use all her talents, intellect, wisdom, personality, vocational power, freeing her to flourish in all her God-given strength and beauty and glory. That's what it means to serve as a leader and to lead as a servant. And a wife's submission within this dynamic simply involves not only following but encouraging and supporting this husband to serve and to lead in this way, which is Jesus' way. And you can almost imagine already the way in which marriage then is intended to be a a dance, where if you're looking at it from the outside, it may not always be clear who's doing the leading, because there's such a continuous exchange and reciprocal giving and deferring in love again, because the main thing is oneness. The main thing is love. And as we move on, let me repeat that passages like this don't eliminate difference. They are meant to reimagine and revolutionize the way in which we embody our different roles and identities, not just to reinforce traditional hierarchies. No, no. There are some differences in roles and responsibilities, especially among husbands and wives here, but the overriding emphasis of the Bible in marriage is that they should be characterized by partnership, self-denial, mutual respect, sacrifice, and love. Wives and husbands. Secondly, children and parents, and I'll close with this. Children and parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. To be clear, this is a word for younger children, adult children, it's still the case that we are called, as Exodus 20 tells us, to honor our fathers and mothers, honor our parents, which is different from obeying them, but for younger children still in the household, obedience is the word here. And what does that mean? It it means to actually follow the direction of one's parents and to do so without talking back or Rumbling because obedience starts in the heart. It's not just about doing it outwardly and visibly, but if Christ is our Lord, then even the invisible places of our hearts are matters of obedience as well. And children, we do so not only because, I mean, not because, excuse me, not because our parents are sinless, but simply because they are one of the chief ways in which God gives us his grace, his wisdom, his truth, and his love. Children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. And then in verse 21, the apostle addresses fathers. And clearly this refers to fathers and mothers. But you know, it's worth noting that this direct address to fathers leaves no room for dads to outsource all child-rearing to mom alone. It's your job too, Dad. The first thing to notice here, fathers, parents, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. The first thing to notice is that if children are to obey their parents, parents should not shy away from asking for their child's obedience increasingly that's a challenge in our culture something people are hesitant to do it is for their good training them in righteousness and the grace of god showing them how to love uh, pulling them out of their self-centered impulses and giving them hearts that actually consider neighbor don't be afraid to ask for your child's obedience but also fathers do not embitter your children they will become discouraged Yes, children are to obey their parents, but parents must take care of how they parent too. And that word embitter has also been translated provoke or exasperate. And so we ask, how does one embitter or exasperate or provoke a child to become discouraged, right? What, what is he saying we shouldn't do? Well, how does that happen? Well, I think it's a couple things. It, it might be parenting in a manner that's overly harsh or threatening. It it might be nagging them incessantly and not giving them any room to grow or change or make mistakes. It, It might be crushing them with guilt or shame or condemnation or maybe always barraging them with an unending list of rules. And in the face of their failures, offering them no relief of grace or forgiveness, no pardon, It might mean never admitting wrongdoing as a parent or asking for forgiveness yourself, which parents should do often. And it might mean failing to flood more positively, failing to flood these children with encouragement and with affirmation when they do, in fact, successfully obey. All these different ways in which parents can embitter or exasperate or provoke a child to become discouraged. I tell you, it's humbling uh, to say these things, to, to preach this, looking here at my daughter uh, sitting together with me. Daddy needs to do better, don't I? Daddy needs God to help. And we all do, don't we? We all do. Because, see, what we're being called into in all these relationships is a newness that cannot be manufactured by human strength and wisdom alone right how did we start we said this is a shock wave of the resurrection of Jesus that enables us to partake in a revolution of love that changes the way that we negotiate power, serve in love, lay down our lives, lift others up. This is an invitation, yes, to recognize role differentiation, but also radical inclusion in our homes, in our relationships, in the church, in all places. And why? Why this radical change? Why does the resurrection of Christ just bust boundaries and and wake us up and and make us new? It's because Jesus. It's because he is both the, the pattern, the mold, the model of how we do this, and also the personal power for living in this way. Listen, Jesus was the supreme one who submitted in love to his Father while he was here on earth. You want to see the beauty, the glory of a joyful following? Look at Jesus, who loved his Father. Jesus, who was the head, but who loved even to the point of death. Who did not consider power and privilege something for him to grasp or exploit, but to let go of, taking on a form of a servant, and obeying God even unto death for the forgiveness of our sins and for the resurrection of our lives. Jesus was the supreme child, the son, who obeyed, and because of his obedience, that you might be saved and loved by God. Jesus was the mighty one who became gentle and sympathetic, not exasperating, not provoking us to be discouraged, but lifting us up. Jesus was the servant who washed feet. He was the master who laid down all authority. Do you know this, Jesus? Look, that has to be the central priority that you grapple with today, whatever you come away with. What was Jesus like? Because this is where we start to see the outworkings, the fruits of this bearing new life in our relationships. What was Jesus like? What has Jesus done for you? What are you coming to understand about the love of Jesus for you personally? And then this question, how does that send a shockwave of new life and love through all your relationships, outside the home, inside the home? Will you dare to consider it, friends? Will you dare to let him change, challenge, stretch you in the way that you think about these things? It does mean. Let's join Jesus in this radical work of love. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. Help us in our gratitude to receive your transforming love. Give us grace by your spirit to grow in grace and make us in all our relationships more like you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.